Welcome to another SayNoKNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug-related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chris and Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash say no org or tweet us at say no org. All right. Well, uh, I'm here with a friend of mine named Josh. That's a pseudonym, but that's what we'll refer to him here. So uh, I just ask our listeners, if you recognize his voice, don't go posting it anywhere or anything. This is, uh, he's taken a lot of time out of his schedule and uh, I think it takes a lot of bravery to come and share your story with us. So thanks a lot for coming, Josh. You're welcome. So do you mind just start off? I mean, this is a podcast that we started and it's about drugs. We want to kick it off with a kind of a two-part series on methamphetamine. I understand you have some history with that, but why don't you just kind of tell me a bit about the life that you've been living? Well, I can't say that my life was... My upbringing, there wasn't a lot of drugs in it. There wasn't, you know, the family issues or, you know, familial problems with drugs and alcohol that most people experienced. And with my own experience, I didn't start using hard drugs until I was, you know, pretty close to 30. So, you know, there was marijuana and drinking in my teenage years, my early 20s. You know, there wasn't really drugs or drinking at all there was a lot of other shit i was into criminal wise you know that you know i could have went that route but it wasn't until i believe i was about 27 or 28 that i got into methamphetamine you know i had been diagnosed with adhd as a child which wasn't my parents chose not to treat me with the medication and it wasn't until i was oh i was probably about 25 that i started taking adderall which you know is an amphetamine and you know, it's probably pretty closely related to methamphetamine. So when I first started taking it, I can't say that I didn't like it because I did like the effects. I did feel the concentration and, you know, the other positive effects from it, but I also did feel the negatives too. Like there was definitely a come down from it. There was definitely a negative aspect that it had given me in the times where it wasn't working, like when you first take it. Cause just like anything, when you first take something, it comes on strong, you know, and as the day goes on and you lose the, we'll call it the high or the medicated effect, you come down and you go back to, you know, the scatterbrain, the ADHD, the, the effects of, you know, whatever disorder or whatever you're facing, you know, they come back and then it's, you know, back to square one. So with the Adderall, I did start to abuse it when it was prescribed to me. You know, I had lied to my doctor about working out of town. So he would prescribe me months at a time and I would be, you know, taking double, triple doses daily and not taking it like you're supposed to, like I'd crush up the beads and the pills. 
and take it. So, you know, you're getting a lot more of the immediate effect. Whereas Adderall, if anybody's taken it before, it comes in beads, which are like a time release kind of deal. So that went on till I was probably about 27, 28. And this is just before I got into meth. So I chose to stop taking Adderall because of that, just because, you know, I was abusing it. I was seeing negative consequences for it. And I was just, I was never somebody who had abused drugs and it really bothered me that I did. So I got off of it, didn't use drugs really after that, you know, the occasional sleeping pill to sleep, which I didn't really abuse. But after I got off of the Adderall, I ran into somebody that I knew in my childhood that I hadn't seen for years. He was into methamphetamine and I seen them getting high on methamphetamine and I chose to try it with them. And that was the first time in my life that I had ever really tried a street hard drug. Really? So, and so, and was it, did you smoke it the first time or, or what? Uh, smoke it. Most people that, not a lot of people snored. Like there's some people that shoot it up, but I was, I've never taken a needle. I don't think I could ever give myself one, but yeah, I was smoking it. And when I first tried it, you know, we didn't even necessarily smoke a lot. I don't remember how much, but it, you know, four or five, whatever hits of it. And I was high for days. I got so high off this stuff. I called the guy who got me high later that day and I told him, what the fuck are you doing knocking on my door? You know, and he wasn't even there. Oh, geez. I was so high and it was so hot in my apartment. I probably had heat stroke and meth psychosis from not sleeping for three days. And I thought he was knocking at my door trying to get in. And I was so paranoid. I didn't even want to open the door. Wow. So that was my first experience with it. The first time I did it, I, I didn't go back to it right away. It, couple weeks had passed before I chose to try it with the same person again and actively pursue taking it. But the first time I tried it, I did like the effect. You know, I didn't like the psychosis part and what came afterwards. Right. But whether that was heat related or just from the not sleep or, you know, never being exposed to that concentration of a substance. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're just really high. Right. So that part wasn't fun. But then after I tried it the second, third, fourth, fifth time, it became a continuous cycle for about a year. This is, this is probably close to when I ran into you that I would go on two, three, four weeks, not using it at all. Right. Choosing to abstain because, you know, it's, it's meth is the one drug, you know, where you have a stigma that's always attached to you. Cause you know, no matter what I've done good in my life previously, or even yeah. now, yeah. anybody that knows that I've touched meth, that is always what comes to their mind first. When they right. look at me, see me, you never lose that stigma. So, and I kind of knew that. So I tried to abstain and stay away from it, but you know, three, four weeks go by, two weeks go by, I get high again, you know, up three, four, five days, go a little crazy, you know, because I'm not used to the whole drug thing and come off of it. Right. So, so explain to me, like, what, what's the high like? Because, you know, from, from my experience, obviously policing on the street, we deal with a lot of people who use meth, but it seems like now, I mean, well, we can talk about it a bit later, but it's litter, it's littered our entire community with it. So now it's like, we're seeing everybody that gets arrested almost has either used recently or has some on their, on the, in their pocket. It's pretty rare. We don't deal with people that have meth nowadays, but it's the one drug that I've always said, cause there's, you know, there's a lot of drugs out there that, you know, you can see the positive side effects as to, you know, Oh, I can see why this would be enjoyable, right? Like taking ecstasy at a rave, for example, you know, something like that, where the, where the risks aren't quite as high for, you know, some long-term effect to occur, 
but the high itself looks like it could be fairly enjoyable. But meth, meth is always one where it just, I've seen people high in meth. It doesn't look like they're having a good time. I see people coming off meth. It doesn't look like they have a good time. And then they're up for, you know, days on end without sleep, which again, doesn't look fun. So what's the, what's the high like with it? Well, meth, it's, you know, when you, when you first start doing it, it's like anything like the MDMA and stuff, like it is closely related to methamphetamine chemically. And I think a lot of drugs, it's just, you know, you do them once or twice and it isn't that bad. Like really it's no different than alcohol or any other stimulant with meth though. And I think just with the quality of the meth, if you do have the quality of meth that you know, the dopamine release, the excitatory effects, the the Superman feeling. Like when I first started doing meth, I had a girl that we would hang out with, that I would hang out with. Yeah. Like we would get high on meth, have sex for 10 hours. Like I'm not kidding, 10 hours. <laughs> wow. And, you know, it became almost a dual addiction where, you know, it was meth, sex, rush, you know, yeah. because you're getting this Superman rush off of it. And then this same chick that I'm having this crazy sex with while I'm doing meth, after we're not having sex, we're doing the most crazy shit you can imagine. Like, dude, we're stealing cars that people are leaving running. We are stealing anything in sight. And it got to the point with this girl where we have so much money. We have so much things. We've got 50 cars stashed around the city with our keys. We had, I used to have this keychain that had like 90 keys on it. Like, and a lot, you'll, when you run them across meth heads, you oh, see yeah. that kind of shit. They have a lot of keys and like, what the fuck are these keys for? They like to steal shit. And I think it's the same thing with the sex and the theft and the, that high risk lifestyle. It's, it mixes in with the meth because it's exciting. Really? So, I think, and a lot of people I've known that have been in the meth, it's the same thing. You know, all the dudes are thieves. All the girls are hookers, call girls, escorts, sex addicts, whatever. And that's just because of the effects of meth and how it affects you. The negative you're seeing in the people that are doing the meth that I think that you're running into in your work is because, you know, they're people with a lot less money. They're in it, you know, because it's kind of forced upon them. You know, the hood's not full of Coke anymore. It's not full of everything else. Like they're still down. There is still Coke there, but it's meth. It's something they're forced into. But not a lot of people realize that in the meth scene, when I was in it anyways, you kind of, they called it the fuck show. And it's just because everything's fucked, right? you know, with the sex, the stealing, the drugs, the violence, but there's almost two sides of it to it. You got the real street people, which that you run into, but then not a lot of people realize that the other half of it are a lot of white collar, a lot of blue collar people that you wouldn't think or know did math. They don't use it. They don't use it to the extremes that I did or other people on the street did, but they do. But in the end, I think they're all doing it for the same reason. And it's because once you do try it, it is something that sticks with you for life because of the rush you get. Okay. And I know a lot of people that I've done it with, you know, they've all tried Coke, whatever else. Meth is the top of the food chain. It's the big dog. There is nothing stronger that lasts longer and gets you higher than that. First stimulant. Yeah. Right. Well, I think, I mean, that, I mean, that's totally it. I mean, you see, I mean, in the meth scene, at least when it first started off, there's a lot of good looking girls that started using it. And we always, we always joke around at work. Like, man, if I was a single guy going to the bar nowadays, I'd be pretty scared at accidentally taking one of these girls home but you know i if one thing i learned early on or noticed early on is they never take care of their feet for some reason 
And so I think if I was going yeah. to the bar to pick up chicks these days, the first thing I'd be like, take your socks off. <laughs> I want to see these feet. Well, I don't, I don't know if you remember when I, I got in that high speed chase and you showed up the night, the girl I was with. Yeah. But if you look at the pictures that I could show you now, like of her, she's, you know, probably one of the prettiest girls you'll ever see. Yeah. She was a good looking girl. You know, meth kind of, it took a little bit out of her at the time. You know, she looks good again now, but you do see a lot of those girls into it. And I think with the girls, you know, a lot of it isn't just a meth addiction. It's a dual addiction from whatever in their past, whatever happened to them. And I've, you know, hung out with a lot of these girls and this is, you know, one part of the drug scene that still bothers me to this day is to see the things these girls went through previously in their life that led them into drugs and the drug scene and meth and down in particular. Like, like abuse, like, like abuse. You're yeah, it's, to and- oh, 99% of the time it's sexual abuse. And right. these girls are like gorgeous girls where like, you know, whether it was a family member, you know, dirty uncle, whatever you want to call right. it, or some other dude, they face these issues. You know, now they're using down to kill the pain and using meth so, you know, they could wake up and have fun and do this and that. So they want to kill the pain, but they still want to have fun. Right. And they got all these underlying issues. And, and to me today, that is still the thing that haunts me more than anything. Yeah. You know, the bad things I did to people when I was on meth haunt me. I still think about it when I go to bed every night. And really? it bugs me because that is not the person that I ever thought I would be. That's not the person I was raised to be. That's not the person I would ever want to be. And that is the person I am. So what, so what is it that takes over then? So, so, I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're, we're using a, a drug here. I mean, it's separate from, from the girls who are maybe abused and got into the drug scene that way. But I mean, for a guy like you, so you start, so you start using Jeb. I mean, were you involved in high speed chases before you were using meth? No, I, you know, actually before, you knew me. I'd never been arrested since I was a youth. When I was a youth, I got in trouble. I did a little time at Euro Youth Farm, Kilburn Hall. Yeah. But that was for kitty shit, you know? Like, I got caught selling weed when I was 17 years old. And they gave me eight months in jail. So, I got out when I was 17, moved away. And then I didn't get arrested again until I was 28 years old. And you know from this period that I was just 20 years old to 28 years old, I sold a lot of coke. Right. I did. I was at the top of the food chain here in Saskatoon selling drugs. Yeah. I never got caught. I don't even think I really had that much attention, heat, or was close to being popped. You know, maybe you know better than me, but I don't think I was. It wasn't until I got involved with meth and started doing it regularly that being in jail and getting arrested was a regular occurrence. Right. Yeah. I, I you know what? I think you're right. I mean, when it comes to drug dealers this day and age, dude, they're a dime a dozen. You know that. I know that. We pop one guy, 10 come up in his place. It's it's a never-ending cycle. I mean, that's it's kind of why this, you know, we kind of wanted to start the Say No program because we wanted to say like, look, we're not we're not winning this so-called war on drugs. We can't eradicate all drug dealers from the world. We can't eradicate all drugs from the world. So what can we do? Well, maybe we can affect our clientele a little bit by educating the public and maybe there'll be less people trying to get Coke. Maybe we can start, you know, fighting from the bottom, try to reduce some of that demand educate the public and that sort of thing. But uh, so let's let's talk about your old coke dealing days. So how much were you moving at the top of your game? Uh, well, I used, I used to get bricks sent in the mail, probably 30 to 40 ounces, we'll say monthly. At the same time, I was getting MDMA and weed from a different source and selling those. The MDMA in the weed was wholesale. Okay. The coke... 
because the money in Coke is so good where you can take an ounce of Coke, mix it with, you know, a couple grams of gaslight, a couple quarters of super buff if you want to sell it to people that are just snorting it. The money was so good. I chose to buy wholesale and sell small. Oh, yeah. I had a couple people working for me that I would give a phone to and we just sold 50s, 50s and 100s. Yeah. And it's money all day. You know, people snort, smoke, 50, $100 worth of Coke crack, 10 minutes. Right. And they're coming back. And these... The people we sold to weren't people I had to worry about pulling any street shit or that were going to be bringing heat to me because they weren't in the street shit. Okay. You know, these are drywallers, plumbers, you know, people that are just going to the bars. So I remember I used to come home on Friday night. I'd come home to my girlfriend and I couldn't even put my hands in my pockets because that's just how much money I had. And it was just all day from the time I woke up till the time I went to bed, two or three o'clock in the morning especially on the weekends, people calling and wanting the shit. Right. And, you know, I think that might've contributed to future problems for me because, you know, as much money as I was making, as much as I was taking in and taking in, I was spending right on useless shit and whatever else. Like I did a lot of things for people around me that we won't go into because I don't want this to come back to me <laughs> that I did positively influence and help them in their life because I was able to monetarily. I could see that. Yeah. So I chose to do that. And maybe that was just my way of, you know, getting rid of this guilt of, you know, cause I know like I'm destroying these people's lives. I did, you know, when I'm selling this guy that's working his ass off all day, throwing up drywall, when I'm selling him crack three, four times a week and, you know, his wife's wanting to leave him and, right. you know, he's not fixing his car. He's not, you know, able to do anything because he has this addiction. I knew I was the one sucking the life out of him to benefit me. Were you thinking about that at the time or is that now that you kind of reflect back? I think about it more now than then, but then I definitely did think about it. It did weigh on my mind, but that's, I think I would just try and put it out of my mind. And I, at the time I was selling shit, I had a girlfriend or two and I would just try and distract myself with them. Right. So. Yeah. When you're fucking for 10 hours a day, it's pretty oh, easy that, to forget. This, the- this is before that. <laughs> oh, it was, yeah, it was just so. normal then, but I did have, you know, a girlfriend who's younger than I am, a gorgeous girl who I could go home to. And that was kind of my distraction. I lived in a five bedroom house with me and this girl. Dude, I had one room that was just full of fish tanks, like saltwater fish tanks. Really? Like the coolest shit you ever seen. Another room that's just full of TVs and video games, you know, in the basement, upstairs, you know, I'd have a couple friends over who don't even know I'm in the drug game. We just play video games and do whatever while I wasn't working. Right. You know, so I was able to provide for myself, you know, buy all the supplements, do all the shit I want because of the money I'm taking in, you know, it was an unlimited money source. What amount of money? Like, honestly, I would, I would say it was at least a quarter million to $400,000 a year. Really? And I blew through that just as fast as I made it. Jeez, eh? So when you're, uh, when you're getting your bricks of Coke through the mail and you did it for the first time. So this is the first gate you've, you've whatever you, I assume you were getting out, piecing off out of somebody or whatever. Now you've built up enough savings that now you're going to invest into a, to a full brick. Is that kind of the way that? No, because you know, I had a, I had a friend that I had known since we were pretty young. And when I, when I moved back here, I, when I got caught when I was 17, I moved, we'll just say somewhere, if I tell where I yeah, came don't, from, don't people are going to know <laughs> it's me, but I moved somewhere far away. I came back, I ran into a friend and he said, dude, like, why don't you, like, why are you, I worked two days. This is the first job I had. I worked two days. Yeah. And this is when minimum wage is like $6 an hour. And he said, dude, I can give you some weed. 
you can make that money in a day, you know? And so I did, I started out with weed and I got in tighter and tighter with this guy. And I knew he was into things other than weed. It, I, the weed thing lasts about for about a year. And then, you know, he started going to Van city and coming back and, you know, I'd take an ounce or two of coke. Yeah. And then it, I was making so much money and because I chose not to use drugs. And this is before I'm spending a ton of money that I was able to save this money. And he just said, you know what? I'm just going to send you packages in the mail. Pay for me. I don't even have to pay up front. He just yeah. said, if you don't like it, send it back. Right. If you do like it and you do make money off of it, once you've made your money, send me the money. Right. We were that close that this guy was never worried that I wasn't going to pay him yeah. or do whatever. So, so you started off getting fronted pretty big weight right off the bat. Yeah. I went from getting an ounce or two cuffed to a brick and we'll say a year. Wow. And it just because I would take an ounce or this is when Coke prices were normal, not like they are now, but two ounces used to cost me two grand. You know what I'd get back out of that? 10 G's. Wow. So it didn't take long. And, you know, he's seen me making this money. It actually got so good for me that a dude came out from BC and said to me, dude, if you have any fucking problems ever, you just call me. And I still see this guy around, we'll say on the computer. And, you know, yeah. this is a, a famous person, we'll say. Yeah. And it's just famous in the criminal world. No, a famous oh. in a famous in a regular world that you would never know. It's this guy, you know, you might see him on commercials, you might see him on that kind of stuff. But he came out and told me, introduced himself. If you have, ever have any problems, you just come see me. There was a couple of times I did have problems and I did call this guy and things were taken care of. So in my whole Coke selling career, I was never robbed. I was I don't think I ever sold to an undercover. I didn't ever have any problems. So as time went on and on, it just got easier and easier. You know, even though I felt bad about some of it, it was too easy. Well, it's easy money. Yeah. Like, why, would I, why, why did I say no? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I always, I always equated to, I mean, what's, what's addicting to selling drugs is the easy money. I mean, you can work for what, a couple hours a day and you can make more money than most guys that are grinding it out for 40 hours a week. Yeah. And you know, when, when I was young, I had that job for two days and it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I had the first real job of my life. Right. So, you know, even as a young person, I started selling weed when I was 14. I got caught when I was 17, but it was even then like, why would I get a part-time job as a kid in a grocery store when I can sell weed and get all the free weed? And, you know, I bought myself a Mustang when I was 16 years old with my own money. Yep. You know, my parents didn't buy me shit. They probably would have if I would have, you know, been a normal kid and stayed out of shit. But I chose to be, you know, a little gangster ass kid as a kid. Yeah. So what's it like? Uh, what's it like being in a high-speed chase? What's it like being on the other side of the car? Because I'm telling you, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's pretty, it can be pretty exciting uh, from our perspective, but what's it like from yours? The chase with you guys. That's not the only chase first. you've been in, is it? Chase. No. There was other chases that were with people that, you know, it, it fucking haunts me because there was one, I won't say where, but I had taken a car with this girl and we're driving down the highway and there's a car, there's someone chasing us in a car because we had just stole something from them. And so we're driving down the highway. There's a car in front of me that's turning left, but I don't have time to slow down. So I go to the left of them to pass them. And they, I almost hit this person as they're turning left. I'm driving at the time. 
And I still think about that to this day because, because, dude, I was doing 130 kilometers an hour. There's no way this person would have walked away from it. Oh, man. No way. And, you know, the, this is something I still think about regularly is, you know, how close that was. I was high on math at the time. You know, we had wronged this person by stealing from them. They chose to chase us in their car, almost killed them on the highway, almost killed the person that was turning left. Thank God. I didn't hit them, but I passed this car. The car we were driving in spun out. I ended up in the ditch. The person that's chasing me, seen how crazy it got and chose not to pursue us any further. Right. Me and this girl take the car. Uh, we drive. We hide out in a barn. Get this. We hide out in a barn. <laughs> I haven't thought about this in a long time. <laughs> at a farm. At a farm, Kate. And we pull into this farmyard. We pull up to the barn. This I is like the, the making of like a B-rate movie right now. Yeah, I drive, I drive the car into this barn, close the barn doors and whatever. The reason we went to the barn and the farms to hide because I hear all these sirens. Yeah. So the other thing is when I started hearing these sirens, I look at the gas gauge and it says empty. I'm so fucking high on math at the time. I didn't realize that if you make a car spin and spin and almost crash it, that your fuel gauge is actually going to say it's empty because the gas is swirling around and it's not reading the gas correctly. Oh, okay. So the car actually still did have lots of gas that I could have kept going with, but I thought it didn't. Right. Because I'm so high, I don't realize this shit. So we park in this garage. I go up to these people's house. I ding the doorbell. There's no answer. So we're fucking high as fuck. So we go, I go back in the barn and instead of being normal hideout, what do we do? We get higher. Oh like, my God. So we're in this, this person's barn, rummaging around, looking for gas, tearing their shit apart. And then I hear somebody in the yard. I think it's the cop. So I'm like looking out the side door, looking out the windows and it's just some dude. Right. So I go and talk to him and he's just like, what the, like you guys are in my barn looking for gas. And I was like, I was like, just take some money, dude. Just, uh, we just need some gas. He wanted us out of there. So he actually siphoned some gas out of a sea or something to put it in uh, our car. So we got out of there. Thank God. Um, didn't get arrested. Drove away. This car that we had, we had taken. I, someone left the keys in it or something somewhere we were and we took it. But yeah, just just the rush from that chase was at the time, you know, I don't think my heart's ever beat faster and you know with the math it was just like regularly that's not something i would have done right is put other people in that kind of situation well your decision yeah your decision making skills kind of go down but i mean even i mean this is exactly why we have the pursuit policies we do in in this province anyways and they're always looking at them for changes to tighten them up because even when we're in that pursuit as you know if i'm the primary vehicle involved in the pursuit i go to pull you over because the car's stolen or or you just committed another offense and you know the chase is on i turn my lights and you take off we're kind of under the impression that no matter how skilled and experienced that officer is in that car they're not necessarily the best ones to always make a judgment call because they're you know they're into it their heart's beating fast they're into this chase too it's a little different from your perspective because we probably do it so often that you know our heart rate doesn't go up as much as it probably should but we have a sergeant monitoring right away you know, and if that pursuit, if they don't, if, if that sergeant hears that the voice of that person is, is up a pitch or they're not updating enough information about, you know, how fast the car is going, what the pedestrians are like on the road, what's the road conditions, what's the weather conditions, you know, what's the other driver doing? What, what offenses are they breaking? You know, traffic safety offenses are they breaking along the way. If you're not continuously giving this update, 
they're going to shut that pursuit down right away. And rightly so, because I mean, it's not worth someone getting killed over a stolen car or some other crime or arrests are a dime a dozen. We don't need to kill somebody to, yeah, you know, to just catch them in that moment. But I don't think I'll ever forget the chase I got into with you, you guys, you know, I wasn't the one driving this time, but you know, I was there, there was out one point when it first started that I actually had grabbed the wheel from the person that's driving and tried to crash the car just because I remember what it was like the first time. Right. Not with you guys, but with that other person in like, I'd rather go to jail than die or kill somebody. Right. I didn't think about that the first time, but the second time it wasn't. So we were going pretty quick and I grabbed the wheel and tried to crank it and she grabbed it back and kind of righted the car and started freaking out. So I was just like, fine, whatever, just like stop, let me out. I'm just going to give up. Yeah. But it never got to the point where I would have been able to jump out because by the time we got into the chase with you guys, all of a sudden there was a dozen cars behind us and they didn't choose to stop pursuing, even though we were driving 110 kilometers an hour down the wrong side of the road. Right. In residential areas, you know, maybe it was the fact that it was late at night, not in the daytime, but they did pursue us until we hit spike trap, whatever you want to call it, and we're taken off the road. Oh, yeah. Soft stop sticks or whatever. Yeah. Wow, man. It's quite the life. So, so how did it go from, you know, you're your slinging Coke? Are we using Coke when you were selling? Never. I've never. never even tried it. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you're, so you're selling Coke, making lots of cash, dating you know, good looking girls, life for the most part's going well. What was it then? You said, I remember you said you'd, you'd started taking Adderall. Was that yeah, during this time or? That was kind of the, the I, I was dating some, this is kind of when I was getting close to getting, I got out of the code game for a little bit before I got into using meth. And the reason I did try and get out of it, try and quit it is because I started dating somebody new and they, or somebody that I actually started to care about, whereas the ones previous, it was just more of uh, the physical attraction. You know, I was in my mid twenties and it was just fun. Right. I met somebody who actually had a kid, and she found out what I did at first. She she wasn't cool with it, right? But she didn't really break it off because of it, and it got to the point where she kind of gave me the ultimatum, where you know, s- stop this, or we just you know can't see each other anymore, kind of deal. At the same time, I found out a family member of mine was really, really sick and they didn't know whether or not this person was going to make it. So I'm going through the dual thing of this girl that actually, probably the first girl I ever loved. And she left, took her kid. She was living with me at the time. And then I'm dealing with the family member that's sick and I chose to get out of the cocaine. I stopped. Um, I was taking Adderall at this time, abusing it after she left. And I found out this family member was sick for, it wasn't that long of a period, maybe three or four months. And then I quit with the Adderall, tried to get the girl back. She was kind of just like, no, you know, it's, I got a kid, like you might be doing good now, but who's, who's, you've never had a job. Right. You know, now all of a sudden you're going to just be some, you know, normal guy. And, you know, it's a hard thing when you're 30 years old. And I was lucky in the fact that I had, people that I had done these favors for with the money that now I can put some bullshit on my resume because they own businesses right. and whatever. And, you know, they helped me when I was older, but you know, it was hard being 30 and like, I don't know what to do for a job. Like I've never done anything other than 
no sell, drugs. sell drugs, right? You know, and that might translate into sales opportunities. It might translate into something else, but it's another, never something I pursued, right? And yeah, it was about three, four months after I stopped using Adderall, tried to get the girl back, depressed as fuck, that I ran into this person and tried the math. And it, it was a quick downhill from there. Like I said, it was, you know, use it for a week, get off of it for a couple, maybe a month at the most, use it. And it was about, it was about nine months into using meth that I actually had my first run-in with you guys. Because, you know, the whole time I sold Coke and did all my criminal shit as an adult, yep. you know one thing that I never got? What's that? I never got pulled over. Never, Not right? once. Not a ticket. <laughs> nothing. And then I'm into meth and then nine months go by and I get arrested. I was, I was on the west side. I just got high on meth. I was with two people that you probably know. And all of a sudden, all these cops pull us over and arrest us. No, actually just arrest me. So anyways, <laughs> they pull me out of the car. They know who I am by my face. They say, you're under arrest. Well, I don't just say, okay, cool. Yeah. I run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I run. And I'm not running because I think I'm going to get away or I even want to get away. I just don't want to get caught with all the dope in my pocket. So I throw this dope and let the cop arrest me. I go to jail and this is for break and enter. And this isn't even a, a break and enter that I did myself. I actually had given someone some drugs to break into a store and steal a bunch of shit, paid him for it, whatever. But he ended up getting caught saying that I had done it and I got caught for it and you know, I spent some time in jail over this. Maybe I didn't have a criminal record, so I'm pretty sure they kind of let me out. Yeah. I screwed up the release conditions three, four times. Then eventually they're like, no, nah, until you deal with this, we're just going to hold you until you go to trial or whatever. So um, they gave me the opportunity to go to treatment. So this is at a place called Pine Lodge in Indian Head, Saskatchewan. Oh, yeah. So I said, sure, you know, you're going to let me out of jail. I'll go to treatment. Yeah. So I go to treatment. I do the first interviews for the first three days. Did you have any intent at this time of stopping meth or this? Yeah, just- actually, I, I, I didn't ever want to go back to meth once I'd been off of it for a day or two. Like it kind of sucked coming off of it. You feel like shit, whatever, yeah. but it's not something that I've ever in my life, like when I'm coming off of it that I wanted to go back to is more of just being an idiot and putting myself near the people or near the, just putting myself around that situation. So it was me willfully putting myself in that situation. But when I was not able to have it around because, you know, I was in jail or with my family, it's not something that I actively always looked for. Yeah. So when you went to Indian Head. So I went to treatment and then this place sucks. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I probably shouldn't say that about a treatment place, but I, it's just, you know, I've never been to one. So I maybe shouldn't say that, but for me, it sucked. (laughs) Uh, so they start asking me questions, you know, about history, drug use, family use. Yeah. And you know what they told me? They said, you're a situational user who's not an addict and we can't help you. That's what they told you in treatment. In treatment. But it's a bail condition for me to be in treatment. Yeah. So not only did they kick me out of treatment, but when I called the bail supervisor at the time and told her, she just like, I've never heard that shit before you're breached. Right. So, so now I'm wanted. I just got let out of treatment in a city, this little town. I got no money. So do you think it's because you weren't buying into their program kind of thing? Like they they must have seen something. They're not going to kick someone out for I think it's honestly because I told the truth. Okay. I think it's because they are of this belief that um, 
you know, they're big into the the 12 steps, the admitted we were powerless. Oh, right. Yeah, right. those kind of things, which yep. is something even today I don't subscribe to. Like if you are powerless before something, like that's just not me. I was not powerless. I chose to do this and put myself in this situation. I'm powerful enough to now to have been put in this situation dozens of times since I've been out of jail and haven't chose to go back to that. Right. And haven't wanted to go back to that. But because of me having pretty much no past drug use, no family history until I was pretty close to 30, yep. they just saw it more as of a, a dual sex meth thing where, you know, if I didn't have the girl around who was doing the meth that I wouldn't. And you wouldn't use necessarily. Been, and to tell the honest truth, I think they're probably right about that. I think that you know, when I first tried it, me choosing not to continue doing it shows that exact thing that, you know, it wasn't until you put one together with the other that there was the serious, serious problem. Right. And just as I got more and more into it, it got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, then it's not even so much about sex. It's more about the drugs because when you get into meth, it's, it's a graduated thing. Like when you first get into it, smoking a point or two of meth, you're high for days. Right. And then, you know, then it gets to the point where, you know, you're smoking a a half a eighth or an eighth a day or in two days, you know, to get that same effect. Oh, really? And I don't even think it's so much the meth that makes these people the crazed lunatics that you see and yep. that I see when I look at them. It's the lack of sleep. Right. That really messes with somebody. Drugs are drugs. Yeah. You know, if you're only staying up for a day and doing some, chances are you're not going that crazy, but you go six, seven days without sleep. Yeah. I think, well, it's probably, I mean, there's there's no doubt it's, if you've been up for days, I mean, you are in some sort of psychotic state. But I mean, uh, there's this one dude that my partner and I dealt with a couple summers ago. He was high on meth. He was fighting with his brother. His brother called. This guy and the, the guy ended up, like the meth fuser ended up actually being a really nice guy. It's the first time I've ever seen someone write a letter of apology to us and actually sent a letter to my partner. But anyways, this guy, uh, his brother's, his brother calls us. He's like, my my brother just got started using meth again. He'd been clean for a while. He's wrecking everything in my house. Can you guys come? He needs to go to the hospital. So my partner and I get there and he's outside on this little deck and this little deck is kind of broken and the stairs going down, there's maybe like only one or half a step there and the other two steps were missing like a three-step down little porch thing. And as soon as we pull up, he sees us and he's just yelling at the top of his lungs, just kind of nonsensical type stuff. And as soon as we get out, we're trying to talk calm. And, and uh, he goes and he goes to run at us off this deck. But he lands and he breaks his ankle. Like as soon as his foot, he was a big dude, like he was probably 225. His foot hits the, the ground and his ankle, we both watch it and cringe, my partner, Ryan. We, we watch his ankle bend to the inside of his leg. His ankle is now literally twisted and his foot's on his side. You think that would stop him? No. He's now hobbling on basically like a broken nub. His his bones probably damn near popping through his ankle and his his foot is so completely sideways and he's still coming at us to fight. And uh, and so we're like, oh man. So that took a lot. We got the paramedics there and yeah, we had quite the struggle with him. Once we finally got him down um, and strapped to a bed and they injected him with some some sort of depressant that kind of reduces their their heart rate and everything is supposed to put them, put them to sleep. The paramedics didn't have enough. They kept giving it to the guy. We get to an emergency room. The doctor says, how much did you guys give him? And they tell him, and he's like, I've never seen someone take that much. And he's still fighting. 
the guy had to fully mount on top of his stretcher at one point to stop him from attacking and biting everybody. And so we ended up, they ended up hitting him with a bunch more in the hospital. And the doctor's like, I've never given anybody this much ever. Finally, he calms down. And this guy, the only way we could control him, he took, he took a bit of a beating from us. Like he had to, it was the only way for us to control him. And when he wakes up, we're at the hospital with him for a few hours and he wakes up and nicest guy. And I'm like, man, are you okay? Like that was insane. And he's like, I don't have any memory of it. Like really? It's like, you know, how's your head? Cause like I had started the lawnmower on him a little bit and he completely fine, like no, no memory of the event. And, uh, so, I mean, in that case, I don't think it was a matter of him being up for days. I mean, that was the drugs. Like I, the fact that he could literally walk around on a broken nub of a leg, like, oh, still thinking about it makes my stomach cringe. The thing with the meth, like what you're saying, and it's the thing that resonates with me that you said is that he had been clean for a while and chose to yeah, use again. Right. Yeah. When you've been off of the meth or anything for a while, the effects are 10 times that. Just like any drug, you know, you get used to doing it so you don't get the that kind of psychosis. When gotcha. I, when, when I had been when I first started doing it, I'd go crazy because I'd go off of it for two or three weeks and then use heavily. Right. So the psychosis came quick and this is without me being up for days. I mean, as when I was, you know, in the periods of the six to nine months of continuous use, it wasn't until I was at that day five, six, seven, that I noticed the psychosis come in. Before that, I was able to do the math without the psychosis. Yep. There was a lot of criminal shit going on, but there wasn't the the seeing shit and seeing hallucinating like when I had been clean for a while and chose to use, because when I was clean for a while and chose to use, the hallucinations and the psychosis came really quick. Right, right. And I think that can be from any from any drug. I mean, I know, like you said, you you were using Adderall before. You know, my son was on Vyvanse for a while and same things happened. Like I started seeing, it wasn't for, thank goodness I have the experience working with, you know, people who have meth issues. Um, luckily I had that you know, those skills and observations to recognize like some of these behaviors were, were completely a side effect of the drug and we were able to get them off. But yeah, it can be a, it can be a scary thing, meth. And any stimulant, prescription, non-prescription, a lot of people assume, oh, it's prescription, so it's safe. I mean, it's it's not. It's it's all how it's used. It's different to the person. Yeah, I've, I'm of the belief now, you know, that drugs are drugs. Just because you get them from a doctor doesn't mean they're different, especially, I think you got to look at it chemistry wise, you know, rather than who they came from. You know, if this is that close to this chemically, it's the same thing. It is. Yeah. You know, just more of levoamphetamine and dextroamphetamine are like methamphetamine. Yep. You know, it's just a little isomer to the left, a little isomer to the right. And exactly. You got something that's illegal or legal. And there is even prescription methamphetamine you can get yep. here and in the States. So, you know, I mean, there's people that need it probably for it's certain certain situations, but I think uh, I think one thing that we have to do, and you know, and I think that's come with the, all the attention on the opiate crisis, is stopping this thought process that because it's a prescription drug, it's it's automatically safe or safer, and that's not the case. You still need a complete plan and a program. You need to be monitored because, man, I'll tell you, when it comes to suicides. I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg type thing, but I can't think of any suicide that I've been to in Saskatoon, and I've been to a lot, where a family member that was at the house told me there was a recent med change. And so, I mean, what does that tell you right there? I mean, 
I'm sure their doctors would would say that this is why we did the med change because they were already down this path of of suicidal tendencies and and that could definitely be the case. But man, you need a really close you really need close monitoring on any drug. Uh, the doctor thing, like I spent a lot of my twenties selling drugs for money. I don't think a doctor prescribing drugs for money is any different than that. Just like I don't think a bartender serving drinks all night is different than a drug dealer. I think doctors get kickbacks to prescribe these drugs. And I've read a lot of studies on the opiates and how they're not even the most effective you know, way to go as far as pain relief. Sometimes they're the last resort if you're yeah. dying of cancer, you know, or there just is no other option. But you know, how many times have we seen in the news that overprescribed or a doctor getting caught writing bogus prescriptions or overprescribing? I think that because they're doctors, they're not enforced on like other drug dealers and they're allowed to give this stuff out. And, you know, because I'm prescribing you oxycodone or whatever, you might not choose to abuse it, but your kid who's stealing your shit out of your cupboard is going to then abuse it and right. then he doesn't get any more, you know, and then he, you know, goes to school and he wants fentanyl or whatever he can get his hands on. I think you might be right with more of the, uh, the American uh, medical model. I used to, I used to have that assumption as well. And I, I went on this prescription drug symposium um, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, about five or six. It was in Vancouver and it was, it was a room full of doctors and pharmacists and there's a little bit of law enforcement there um, that was invited more or less to give our perspective and then there was a panel and uh, during this panel these doctors spoke and one of the things that still to this day hit me the most well for one was how much these people care almost to a sense of being naive to what's going on and the one doctor that said in front of the panel, in front of everybody that I've never forgotten, is he says, at no point during my entire medical school training did anybody ever tell me patients are going to come into my office and lie to me. And I think that little switch there, these guys aren't trained in decept deceptive behavior. These guys are, for the most part, a lot of doctors by the nature of the business have been students you know, for most of their life. Then they get out into the working world and they're automatically making well above average incomes. And so they don't have the, the street exposure unless somebody has specifically volunteered or taken the time to work with a different demographic. They don't have the exposure or the experience to work with people who are hurting and people that are deceptive because of a need and are literally willing to do and say anything to get what they need and manipulate people. And, and I think that's I think that's the issue in Canada. I know in the States, they had those pill clinics where, yeah, they, there was some kickbacks and the DA rated, rated a bunch back in like 2011 or something. But here, I think from my experience, it's, it's out of a case of nobility, but they're very naive. And I think that's changing now. And especially with, I mean, that's what's nice that the media is suddenly talking about, you know, opiates and fentanyl and all these different things is, is common you know, it's in every day's common chatting at Tim Horton. Someone's probably going to be talking about some something to do with the opiate crisis because it's all we see on the news. Yeah, I think it is. Sorry for interrupting. No, here, it's all good, man. I think with the opiate thing, you know, like I've been involved in the drug game and a lot of people that have done drugs for so long. And the 
the only scary thing I see with the fentanyl and the opiate thing is just the only reason people are scared is because people die. Yeah, you're right. You know, there's 150 million times more people in this city doing meth than fentanyl. I'm glad I'm glad you brought this up. There's a perfect segue where I, where I wanted to take our conversation next is do you think that in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan, for one, do you think there's an opiate crisis here? I don't think there is anywhere. No, I don't think I, there is in Vancouver. I don't think there is in Ontario. I don't think there is in California. I think there is a powerful drug that a small portion of the population is choosing to use and it kills them. That's going to make the news. You know, when white kids die, yeah, it makes the news. I, that's exactly right, man. Uh, <laughs> I've talked to some policymakers here in Saskatoon and as well as uh, some, some provincial policymakers about this exact issue. The only reason we care right now and this is this shows the racism and the, or the prejudice that's built within these systems in which we operate. As soon as a white kid dies, we care. But you know, I know in Saskatoon, opiate opiate uh, abusers, at least from my experience, were predominantly Indigenous uh, users. A lot of them that were using IV opiates, and you weren't seeing you weren't seeing many people that came from a background of you know, support and love and care. Somebody that actually, you know, the people that are slamming needles into their arms, you you start asking them questions on the street, you build a bit of a rapport and you say, you know, tell me a bit about your life. They talk about abuse. They talk about their parents being in residential school. They talk about sexual sexual abuse. The word molested comes out all the time when you have these basic conversations with an IV drug user, especially with, with the opiates. And then all of a sudden, a couple of white kids die, front page news. And, you know, I hear what you're saying because, you know, even though I, I wasn't ever really somebody that sold opiates, I have always seen the down problem that was in the hood. Right. You know, native girls that choose to shoot Dilaudid, which they call down, you know, yeah. the beads or whatever. And I seen a lot of girls growing up and even as I was older go through this, especially when I started getting into the meth, you know, like we talked about that dual scene of the meth and down with these girls, like you see a lot of that, but this person that I was involved with that I got in this chase with when I met her, I was clean at the time actually. And she was hooked on fentanyl. That's how I met her is because she actually had stole something from somebody and they wanted me to go talk to this girl, get it back, deal with it, whatever, which I, you know, really wish I wouldn't have, but it was fentanyl that she was addicted to. And this is somebody that came from a very affluent family so at that time, was it like the green monsters, like the little yeah. green oxy knockoffs? Yeah. yeah. You know, and so she had this bad addiction to them where when I met this girl, she would do anything for them. And I'm talking about a gorgeous person that would do anything for something that's worth $30. Yeah. Like this shit, you know, turns you into something you're not because just of the, you know, that hold it has on you because you don't want to feel that not having it, that not high part, you know? Right. And I've, I've never used opiates or down in my life, so I can't speak to that withdrawal and that agony that they go through. But seeing it, I know it is real. Oh, it and I know it must very suck. Oh, yeah. And to see the few people that I did, and I have a family member who's actually on methadone now because they chose to abuse fentanyl and down. And, you know, I didn't come from a bad family and neither did they. They're not yeah. somebody that should have ever, you know, had to go through this or 
you know, had it in their past to be exposed to this kind of lifestyle and be brought into that, but they chose it, you know, and it still has repercussions on this person to that day. Same with this girl that I was involved with. She is still facing, and I, this is a girl I actually talked to yesterday and the first time since I've been in that chase. Oh, well, wow. and I, I just wanted to touch base with her because I had heard some things and, you know, it's back to the same thing. You know, it's back. Like, why would you want to go back to that thing that stole your soul? And it is that powerful because she's, you know, she right back at square pull one. herself out of it. No, not at oh, all. That's sad, man. You know, jail didn't help. Treatment didn't help. You know, the, having all the family support in the world, which she did, didn't help. Right. You know, she chose to go back and put herself in the same situation with the same asshole who had got her involved with it before. And, you know, now she's looking at me again. Like, can you help me? And this time, you know, I learned my lesson. Yeah, you stay know, away, man. Like, it's not, as much as you want to help these people, I don't know if you can. You can feel bad about it. And I do. I do regret all the stuff I did to anybody I ever sold to or got involved with this or that because I have seen these people, you know, face consequences that they don't come back from, you know, right. suicide, right. you know, I mean, people that'll just never be the same. This person being that, I think she's past that point she's been over the precipice of that mountain where she's compromised herself and her soul so much where you don't come back from that right. once if you sold your soul so much and done so many things to you know go against who you are you're just so broken that's just gonna be with you yeah you know and especially as a girl because the way you're compromising yourself isn't you know like yeah, i stole which is something i never thought i would do right but that's stealing yeah women sell themselves you know and you know they sell themselves right. you know and they do this and you know that is something that's going to stay with you you know i don't see how it couldn't right so so okay talking about opiates here so you know in bc right now i think they're still having on average about two or three overdoses a day and uh, from what i understand it's the issue there is they, you know, their users like heroin, they've always been opiate heroin users in Vancouver and it's easy access. You know, it comes in from the boats and, and, uh, hits the streets pretty quickly. They start dropping dead because somebody unbeknownst to them is now trying to cut corners and they're lacing their heroin that they've been using successfully for 15 years, not dying from it. Now all of a sudden it's laced with fentanyl and boom, down they go. Saskatoon, this province for the most part, never our heroin users. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've never seen heroin and you're in the game. I've seized a little bit of it, but it's very, a very small user group. Our opiate users like Dilaudid, um, like the hydromorph beads. In that scene, yeah. Yeah, and, and morphine. Those are our opiate users. So when, when fentanyl hit here and those green pills came and they were the fake knockoff oxy cotton pills because the patent had expired, they hit the street and then all of a sudden, a few kids get their hands on from an upper middle class family or you know middle income family. Kids that probably shouldn't be accessing this, they try it. Unfortunately, it kills them. But what happens then is that their friends say, I never want to touch that drug again. And so it almost self, I, I found that those, the green monsters, except for the people that were you know, hooked on Oxycontin. Already before. doing them. Yeah. Yeah, if they were already doing them, then then I mean they're gonna they're gonna use these. But for the people getting it introduced, it almost regulates itself because it's you know once you see a friend drop dead from that pill right there, I mean you're not gonna want to use it. Whereas it's a little different than if you know you're using heroin and it's suddenly it's been laced unbeknownst to you, you're still gonna try and get your heroin, you know, and hope that yours isn't laced with fentanyl. Yeah, 
You know, I, I watched a show on Netflix recently. I'm pretty sure it was called Drugs, and it was actually about heroin. Oh, yeah. And this this black dude somewhere, I can't remember, Louisiana or Chicago or something, he, he was a heroin dealer, been a heroin dealer for the longest time. Yeah. But for the last two, three years, he's been cutting his shit with fentanyl because they don't want it if it doesn't have the fentanyl because it doesn't have that oomph. Oh, really? They've gotten used to that kick, so that's what they want. Interesting. And yeah, you can go and watch that on Netflix. And you know, I, I understand where he's coming from. Like, yeah, like if you want to make money, you got to give people what they want. Yep. Not that I agree with it or it's the greatest thing, but I think Vancouver's probably seeing the same thing. The reason these people are dying is because that's what they want. Some of them. A lot of these junkies, and I've seen this personally, they want that down, that opiate that takes them close to death. They want to nod off. Right. That's what they're chasing. And, you know, they are always chasing this one step from death high, and that's scary. Right. And, you know, another thing that bothers me with this fentanyl, especially with the kids, is, you know, like I said before, meth has that stigma attached to it. Right. Once you've done meth, you're a method. Right. You know, you're a piece of shit. A lot of these people that are doing fentanyl, I don't understand why it doesn't have the same kind of stigma with the kids. They don't look at the fentanyl heads or people that have done fentanyl as something that out of the ordinary where they would with meth. Well, you know what's happened? I mean, teenagers, be it as they may, I was talking to a friend last year who's an addictions counselor here in the city. And he said, you know what's happened with some of these teenagers now is it they've almost developed this uh, persona. And this was when they were prescribing methadone for a kid who's come off fentanyl. There was a short period of time where some doctors did which they shouldn't have because they didn't need it. I mean, they've already detoxed from the drug. If they used it on the weekend, it's now Thursday and they haven't used it since. Mm-hmm. The detox is done. Methadone is strictly to, you know, it's to help with the detox process. It's not a, it's not a treatment plan per se. It's part of the plan, but it's, it's more to, you know, control your opiate levels and control, you know, have a slowly wean, slowly wean you down over, over a significant period of time. <laughs> well, what ended up happening was some of these kids that got uh, methadone prescriptions was now at school it's kind of like oh I've had this hard life and oh poor me and and oh look like I'm having to take this drink and so there there's a lot of this sort of self-loathing using it as like an attention grab sort of piece that happened within a couple of high schools in the city here and so I think uh I mean that's teenagers right we all know how they can be but it's a trend yeah yeah it's it's a trend kind of thing and Hopefully it's down. I mean, I haven't heard, I haven't heard of fentanyl being used too much still in high schools. They're starting to go more to some different prescription drugs, but I think I'm hoping anyways, that the green monsters, as we know them, isn't going to take hold. And all of a sudden we're going to see a whole bunch of high school kids drop dead because that would be horrific. So, I mean, we're both kind of saying that, you know, from our perspective, my perspective, your perspective, we don't see Saskatoon necessarily having an opiate problem referring to the national opiate crisis per se. I honestly don't think that any country can say that. I don't think the United States can say that. I don't think Canada can say that. I don't think it's a crisis just for the fact that the only reason it's getting attention is because of death. Yeah. You know, just because you die fast 
doesn't mean you should be in the news, dude. You know, you got people that are, you know, we'll use meth as the example. These people are leading these lives that are a thousand times more destructive than fentanyl users. That's why you're seeing the property crime. Right. That's why you're seeing a lot of this other stuff come out of the drug other than just the people using the drug. You know, it sucks that you died, but honestly, you did make that choice to use that drug. So just for us to publicize it to, I don't know why they want to publicize it. I don't know why they want to say there's a crisis and draw all this attention to it when there is a lot worse going on in other sectors. Like, I, other, are you talking about other drug sectors? Yeah, like I the meth, like that, the meth okay. in Saskatoon. Like, it's, right. You know, I, I've I've read a couple articles recently that you know the police did about, and it's mentioned in like the seventh paragraph where meth is a contributing factor to property crime. Right. You and me both know how much property crime and shit goes on in this city because of meth. I would say it's ninety percent or more. Yeah, like that. You know, that's very anecdotal research, but yeah, and you know, a lot. This is affecting a lot of people's lives because they're the ones that are getting stolen from and hurt and robbed and having their cars taken, right? And their families being destroyed because a lot of these meth users, you know, it, like you said, you told me it, it is all over the hood, and it is. Yeah, it is. But everywhere. it is also on the east side and the north yep. side and Silver Springs and totally. wherever else. And these families are going through just as much, if not more as the people that had to deal with the fentanyl and you know the meth users aren't going to die from it. So would you say there's a meth crisis right now? I would say there is a meth crisis definitely more than an opiate crisis. Yeah, I I I would definitely agree that it's more um, especially in the city. Especially in the city, yeah. And you know, I I lived somewhere when I was younger which was known as the meth capital of North America, we'll say. Okay. This is somewhere down south and I seen I didn't partake in it at this time, but I seen there was a there was a area in the city called Oildale, and we always used to make fun of it, you know, and go down there because there's a lot of people with no teeth running around crazy as hell. And this was a a, a lower class white problem, right? But that was a meth community, right? And it destroyed it. And that was just how this part of the country, this state was. And, you know, there still is a meth epidemic in the States. I agree. Just because people don't die and it's not the governor's daughter, this guy's daughter, it doesn't get publicized. Right. Right. So, okay. And that's not to down, sorry, that's not to downplay that, you know, the fentanyl is a problem. Right. It's just, it's got such a small user base that I don't ever see it becoming an epidemic. It just, you know, it's terrible that people die. Yeah. Like I wish instead of labeling it uh, that we have an opiate crisis, I wish what we would say is we have an addiction crisis. We, we, have, an, we have a crisis of addiction. We have a crisis of organized crime being the only source of fulfilling these people's habits uh, that, are, that they're spending millions of dollars on. They're breaking into my garage. They're stealing my cars. They're, you know, robbing the convenience stores. That's a crisis that almost all of our crime in our community is directly associated to somebody's addiction. And when we know that addiction has typically a root in childhood abuse, trauma, neglect, maybe some mental health issues, when we know that those are the root causes, instead of addressing the symptoms over here on the, on the far side and treatment centers and all this, which is definitely required, but we're doing nothing at all to, to solve some of these root causes in our society, which I'd like to see. But Talking about talking about meth, um, we've we've identified here we've got a meth crisis in the city. What the fuck do we do now? That's a good question. You know what? I 
I don't, I wouldn't be the first one to say I know anything what to do about it, but I do know this. I do know we choose to make issues out of the things that matter the least to the most amount of people. We take issues. Okay, just wait, say that again. We take issues like, let's say a president's getting elected. Yeah. Instead of focusing his election on, you know, the biggest problems, how we're going to get everybody jobs, how we're going to take care of it, how we're going to better our school systems. We choose to focus on these hot issues. Oh, gay marriage. Totally. Uh, You know what I'm saying? You take those little things, abortion. These are, they're, they're, they're big topics, but they're a topic that affects such a small percent of the population that I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but does it matter more than us educating children, making sure people have jobs, making sure there is proper addiction treatment and the rest of the stuff we choose to publicize and make those issues the ones. And so that's all that we ever deal with. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now weed's getting legalized because that's a big deal. But how many other things are we screwing up to focus on that? Like, should the weed legalization been the biggest issue of an election? Right. Like, isn't there (laughs) things in our lives that matter more than whether you can get high or not? Because personally, me, if you want to get high, if you're over the age of 21 or whatever it is, if you want to get high, you're an adult. Right. That's your decision to make. I don't think you should be criminalized for that. I don't think you should go to jail for that. I don't even think you should be judged for that. Right. I think that is your decision. Right. So, and you know, as far as how do we deal with the meth problem, which I believe is the problem, maybe they should try publicizing it. Yeah. Maybe they should try putting it in the news or showing the faces of meth. Like I know I've seen in the States, you know, where they take the the before and the after. And, right. You know, because you hear about the fentanyl deaths, you hear about a little bit of the meth stuff, but you don't really but, see. But meth doesn't give you, it doesn't give you a number. You can't say three people dropped dead today. You know, you can't say that. It doesn't give, it doesn't give you, you know. But you can't say there's like, 96 cars stolen yeah, today, 47 yeah, break and enters, and you, you know guess. this is your car, their car, that's yeah. your neighbor's house. Like, so we need to be making those links, is what you're saying. But I look. think that if people want to start seeing it for the issue it is, that it has to get publicized. So if you were to say right now today, city of Saskatoon, we eliminate meth. Boom, it's gone. There's no such thing as a meth addict. No such thing as uh, meth on the streets. How much property crime are we gonna have? There's not going to be any, but you know, the, you, I, I, something just came to my mind and it's the Philippines. Yeah. In the Philippines, they call meth shabu. Okay. Okay. Uh, I know a couple of Filipino people and I've read about this quite a bit in the news because it was a subject I was interested in, but in the Philippines, they don't really do drugs other than meth. It's straight to meth. That's all they do. And the president there is actually taking this hardline stance on drug dealers and drug users that if you do this, we're gonna shoot you. Yeah, well, they're doing it with they're doing it with. I mean, guys that have joints in their pockets. I think yeah, but yeah, they in the Philippines they do have that meth problem, and, and that is the drug right. there. And whether or not that was successful, I don't think so. No, nope, that's not how they've chosen to deal with it. In Saskatoon, how well, do you what, what, deal is with that, it? what does that tell you though? Right there, that somebody is somebody knows that if they get caught using this, they could be shot dead in the street, and yet they still do it. I don't know what the numbers are, so I can't <laughs> yeah. speak to that. But would it would it make me not want to do it? Yeah, but like I don't know if right. it's going to completely prevent Probably other not. people. Not if they're already doing it, no. right? You know, you know they they've tried so many drug programs. You know, the Dare to Resist, the Just Say No, and yeah. all of this. Like in the end, it hasn't really been successful because no. people are going to try things. You know, even reindeer will eat mushrooms. You ever read that? 
Ranger will actually look out magic mushrooms, look them up, try and find them, eat them because they like the feeling. Yeah. Well, I know people have been intoxicating themselves forever. Yeah. But I mean, um, Egyptians smoked opiates. Totally. Well, this this is the whole thing, man. Like, I'm a big believer in regulation and discouragement. So, you know, rather than making everything illegal, because then we have all these other compounding problems now, the simple fact that it's illegal, but one that we don't talk about very often is potency. It's, you know, you look at alcohol prohibition during the Al Capone days, what's everyone drinking? Freaking moonshine, man. Like 90 proof booze are getting blitzed. The same thing right now. What do you have to do as a drug dealer? I mean, you know this best. I mean, the, the goal of the guys importing it into our country is they need to get as many people high as possible off the smallest amount of product. Yeah. In a system where it's regulated, that's not the case. We're, a, we're the ones creating these criminal organizations. Totally. By it. But anytime you make something illegal, you create a demand for it. There is a demand for it because someone has to fill it. Yeah. I mean, we can't we can't say because it's illegal now that nobody wants this product. If somebody wants this product and is willing to pay for a product, there will it. always be an entrepreneur, no matter how unethical you might think it is, there will always be an entrepreneur willing to step up and take the risk yeah. for the money. And, you know, with it being illegal and you know, becoming harder to get because we've made it illegal. It just creates more profits for terrorists, criminal organizations, because we've chose to make it illegal. In my opinion, I don't think any drug should be illegal. I think if you want to buy anything you want, if you're an adult, you should. And it should be cheap as hell because it's the only way you're going to get rid of the secondary crime problems Right, is having things cheaply available. Is that how we're ever going to go? Probably not. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've done a lot of research and um, actually the Lancet Commission that came out of the United Nations a few years ago was was a really good one because those guys spent a year studying what the best system would be. I don't know if, I, I still haven't come to the point if I think a full, you know, legalization over decriminalization because it comes to the part as well is it a is it a healthcare issue so i mean you mean what do we want to be able to buy at the at the corner store do i want to buy a beer a case of beer for my on the way home from work yeah i do do i want to you know maybe go grab a blunt for when i'm fishing at the lake yeah okay fine that could be acceptable do i really want to be able to walk in and get a preloaded syringe with 20 milligrams of heroin no probably not is there a market for that probably not whereas if we're if we're actually saying, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would I would go on to say that there's no such thing as a recreational opiate user, someone who who or or be very few and far between, somebody who's just for fun on the weekends. It's a it's a habit that's not causing any other chaos in their life, and they're freaking using heroin or 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 Dilaudid or something. Like there probably isn't a recreational a proponent. I would say I I'd I'd agree with you. To the point, except that now that I've been clean for a long time and chose to just abstain from everything, I've I've actually started to see any mind-altering substance or substance that gives some kind of benefit yeah. high as a problem. Okay. Because they all have repercussions. That joint might not make you go steal shit, but it's going to hurt your lungs. Right. That beer, 12 beer, six beer that you're going to drink on the weekend... 
Might not make you go rob garages, but you are probably going to be doing damage to your liver. You might, you know, act a little funny. You are not going to be the exact same person you would be as if you didn't have the beer. If you can sit there and have one beer because you like to taste the beer, and I don't know how anybody likes the taste of alcohol (laughs) personally, because I think it tastes like bug spray. I love it, man. If you can have a sip and say you like the taste of it, why don't you just buy a non-alcoholic beer? Because... There's not enough variety. Well, for one, there's not enough variety. And for two, like you said, even even deers in the forest are taking magic mushrooms. I mean, pe- we like intoxicating ourselves. Mm-hmm. We do. We always have. Human beings have. Since the beginning of time, we like intoxicating ourselves. But going back to my point is what I'm, what I'm saying is how, where, where do we choose to draw the line of what's regulated, what's illegal, what's decriminalized? I think if we take the switch that an addiction, I, I like to say an addiction is an addiction. It doesn't matter what the substance is. Mm-hmm. So whether you're addicted to alcohol, alcohol is ruining that person's life because the negative consequences are now outweighing the benefits. When I had last night, we had uh, some family over and we did a kind of a Korean Korean themed evening and we had some soju and beer. It's a traditional Korean drink you mix together. And, and uh, you know, we had some fun. We had some laughs. We had a couple of drinks each. No problem. The negative benefits to that, mm, maybe I was a little bit more tired this morning than I would have been if I didn't have it. Maybe, maybe not. But there was not really a whole structure of negative consequences from it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if all of a sudden, I mean, you're addicted to working out, let's say, and you're hitting the gym every day to the point where now it's, it's actually, you know, relationships in your life are starting to be um, strained. Yeah. Maybe you're working out to the point where you're not even giving your muscles time to recover. You're actually working yourself to, to a point of exhaustion. You know, you're doing all these things or that maybe then you start using steroids because you want to get bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you've seen these documentaries where there's guys that are living out of the back of their car, but they're hitting the gym. Well, that's an addiction. Yeah. It's got a lot of negative consequences for them. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. It, it, it it, you're right. It doesn't have to be drugs. You know, it can be sex or yeah. I, I'm someone who likes to work out. And there was a point recently, not too recently, about a year ago, where I like, why am I doing this? The first thing was that I wanted to be healthier, and I've I've been working out for we'll say about ten years, lifting weights. And I, you know, debated the steroid thing and chose against it because it kind of went against the whole reason of why I'm doing this. Right. And that's like, yeah, it's something that makes me feel better, but it is something that, you know, I can't do it every day of the week. There's got to be days I take off. There's got to be a method to the madness. And there is, because, you know, if I was just to go hard on it, that that's going to destroy me just like anything else would, you know, if right. that becomes the focal point of your life. You can't let any substance or activity become the focal point and cause it to, or let it cause other areas of your life to, to, f- to fail. Yeah. yeah. To yeah, have the issues. So, so this goes some, this kind of goes to the, to the point. So when we, when we start thinking about on a big picture things, like what do we do as a society? So the vast majority of people that consume alcohol are not alcoholics. No. But there are a large percentage of alcoholics, but the majority aren't. We look at, you know, we could look at marijuana. I'm, I'm hoping Health Canada has done the same studies. It seems they are legalizing that maybe it's it's, it's the same. And, and I would say anecdotally, it probably is. Um, based on my experience, I have tons of friends that, you know, smoke weed on occasion, but, you know, it's not ruining their family. It's not ruining their job. Um, is, there, is there a port population becomes addicted to to weed and it does they do become burnouts and their life does start to stop yes there is 
but it's not as many as 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 that just enjoy recreationally. Then when we start looking at opiates, yeah. Now we look at opiate users. I would say with opiate users, the majority of them are addicted. Yeah. We look at methamphetamine users. I would say the majority of them are, are addicted. addicted. Just to touch on that opiate thing quick. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who have used opiates and pretty much all of them have said this. The first time they use it or the second time, it doesn't feel good at all. It actually just makes you really sick. It's not something you immediately fall in love with. It actually takes a couple times before they really like it. I wonder who you're talking to because... Some people do love it, but a lot of the people I've talked to that are been into it said the first time, and this this was specifically what I'm talking about is oxycodone, prescription okay. oxycodone. The first couple of times, they just got really sick when they did it. Puke, dizzy, hated it. Tried it again, liked it a little bit more by the third or fourth time because they, you know, they started whatever, building up a little bit of a tolerance. Then they get that absolute euphoria from it. You know what? Uh, I used to go around asking IV drug users, I'd say, what was it like the very first time you pushed that plunger? And typically it was a family member. Warm blanket. First one. Warm blanket, warm hug, uh, warmth in general. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking, man, because you know right then and there that's replacing but see, the, everything. These that people had. that you're talking about, I think are going to be the ones that fit in that category where the reason they're used, the people I was talking about, they're more people that were u- trying to use it recreationally. The ones gotcha. you are talking about are the ones that are using drugs because as we both know, they had whatever issue they're right. trying to kill the pain. Trying to of kill course, the pain. it's going to do it because it's, it's a pain killer, yep. which is very, di- if you go looking for something to kill your pain, knowing that it probably will kill your pain, it probably will kill your pain. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if you're just recreationally wanting to use something like opiates, but you don't really have pain to kill, it, you know, it's not going to give you that same effect. There is some kind of psychosomatic or some other way that it acts on you based on how you're feeling. And I know that's true because, you know, when I did math based on how I was feeling, you know, if I was already paranoid, it's going to make me more paranoid. Right. You know, if I'm feeling great having sex with this girl and do more meth and have more sex, yeah, it's going to feel even better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so it does kind of contribute to the mind state you're in. Right. Well, that's a good point. So what do you think it was that happened in Saskatoon in particular in this province? I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm isolating Saskatoon because we live here, but I think it's happened everywhere. I'd like to hear it from your perspective, but what happened? Because before I want to say 2011, 2012, there wasn't a meth. There wasn't, we would never, I I used to stand up and do these drug talks and and people would always ask about meth because they would hear about it on TV or whatever. And I would say the stigma. Yeah. And I would say, we don't have a meth problem here. What happened? Honestly, the answer is economics. Right. Cocaine. Like when, when I was selling cocaine and I had, I don't know how many times I got asked, why don't you just start bringing meth in? Let's push this shit out and let's bring in meth. Why are they saying that? Because meth is infinitely available. You know, it's something that doesn't require a plant. It's not something that requires to be shipped from some third world country 4,000 miles away. Cocaine has to come from Colombia or right. wherever and it's yeah. got to take its route. Meth can be cooked here. Right. You know, meth can be made here. So it got to the point, you know, when I got out of the Coke game, the Coke prices went from, you know, $1,000 an ounce. To, I don't know what they're at now, but I know I know it's still in the $2,000, 2400 it's, yep. it's expensive. Yep. 2200 bucks would be, you're getting a decent ounce. Which is going to preclude so many people 
in the drug community from using it just based on pure economics. Ten dollars isn't going to get you. Nobody's going to sell you ten dollars no, worth of coke until no. you get lost. Right. I know. I would have said if you don't got a hundred dollars, don't even text me. Right. You know. So whereas meth, they'll sell five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars all day because they can. But what changed? Because I remember it was like I think the change is just the fact that it was here. But the kilo pricing must have came down. You know, meth, the price on meth has never, from what I got offered it to the time when I started using it to the time I got out. And even now when I've talked to people, the price of methamphetamine hasn't really changed coming from BC. Really? It's always been cheap as shit because it's always there. When I used to try and get Coke sent to me sometimes, he'd be like, you got to wait a day or two unless you want A grade. Because I would always want the AAA so I can stomp on it. Okay. Whereas meth, it was just—it's always there. It's always available. It's not something that has uh, a limited supply. Whereas cocaine, you know, and that, these were serious dudes that I was going through, and for them to tell me that you know there's not a lot around probably meant there wasn't a lot around. And this is coming from right out of Vancouver. Yeah. So, you know, unless you want to pay those exorbitant prices on it, but with meth, it was always there. And when I first started doing math it was just after that 2011 and there was sometimes like when you mentioned in your talk when i went to that about the price going up based on seizures and drug availability of math yeah by the time i actually got into the math game and using it and selling it a little bit and doing whatever there wasn't an effect that you guys or anybody else could make on the market that would really affect the price right so what what josh is referring to here is i gave a drug talk and i often say back back when i was in the drug section there was such a small amount of user users using meth at that time. It was like 20 bucks a point was about the average. So a tenth yeah. of a gram, 20 bucks. And we would do a seizure and we could watch the price on the street. We'd hear from our informants or we'd buy some ourselves and it would go up to 30 bucks a point yeah. for a short period of time. Coke, we could seize kilo after kilo after kilo. Price stays the same. Typically 40 for a half, 80 for a full or 50 and 100. Yeah. Nothing changes. Weight goes down a little bit maybe, but really nothing we could do could could fluctuate it but at the same time property crime goes up when we drop yeah. to 30 bucks and you know touching on those two markets i think the other thing you got to look at too is with the cocaine market you got a lot of guys coming from out of town to sell it and the reason they can come from out of town and sell it and choose to sell it and just set up shop by basically having no customers and then all of a sudden having one is you can go to any bar and offer people coke right or you flash it around a little bit and you will get people buying the meth scene is a little bit more under the table it's a little bit more of a it's not as exposed because methods not a lot of them hang out at the bars not like coke users do so you know you can't just come into town with a bunch of meth not knowing anybody and do as well as if you could with cocaine right but i think now with the meth that it's just become so situated here into the scene and you know there's facebook groups about it there's this about it you know We'll never be able to affect the price You know, there's again. actually a thing called plenty of flailers, like plenty of fish. So oh, really? that's for, yeah, that's for people that use mess. So like they, they're all, you know, in on this scene and it's become ingrained into this drug scene. So like, yeah, I don't think there's anything you can do about it. No. Not anymore. Not by just, yeah. I mean, not by arresting our way out of it. That's for no. sure. And I don't think you can do, like they tried that in the States, you know, they used to, throw you know those crackheads in jail for 20 years and all that did is create a jail population that's totally. as big as small countries you know exactly. in the united states you know they used to you know throw you away and lock away the key throw you in jail yeah, and lock. throw away the key yeah 
for minor drug offenses. Right. And you know, these well, are a lot of states still, still have jail. the three strike rule, right? A yeah. Lot, and yeah, we're not talking about people that are selling. We're talking about users yep. and, you know, just doing stupid shit. You know, you get three felonies, you're gone. And I, I don't think that's ever a good no. way to go. No, I agree with you. There. I don't think arresting anybody for simple possession is ever a good way to go. Right. You know, and I actually had a run in with a cop. It's about two years ago where I got pulled over with this girl and he searched us and he found meth in my pocket, a pipe and a knife. And this is the first time I've ever had this kind of occurrence happen with a police officer. You know what he did? Nothing. He didn't arrest me for it. Yeah. You he didn't go. just took it away, threw it away. He arrested me for something else, Yeah, <laughs> but he didn't charge me with the math. the math. Yeah. Because it happens a lot. I man. think it's just, you know, it's gotten to the point where is it really worth your time? Yeah. And I know when I did eventually go to jail for all the shit I did, there was a meth charge. I got a day for it. Yeah. So it's, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, one of the greatest things that we have in our country still is police officers are awarded a discretion. So, I mean, there's no, no one's coming down on me. Uh, from the public, from my, from the police service themselves, no one's saying like you have to do this. You have you have a zero to- we have a zero tolerance policy for speeders. We have a zero tolerance policy for you know someone with meth. That's not going to happen. They want the individual police officer to look at that situation, look at the individual, and just make a decision. And I think uh, we need to keep encouraging that. And I get a little bit worried um, in the policing world that we're starting to have a little interference where we, you know, with the whole street check fiasco, which we won't get into, but you know, they're, they're telling, they're almost telling cops, like it's almost going to be policy-based policing. And that would be a nightmare because a situation like that, the human element is gone. I mean, every person I deal with, I have, I chat with them, see what's going on. And and I, and I ask myself, is it in this person's best interest or the community's best interest for them to be charged with this offense? Many cases it is, it is some cases it's not. So you know, we let them off with a warning, throw the uh, drugs in the exhibit locker for destruction and, and kind of call it a day. Yeah. But and I see what you're saying with, you know, the discretion, but I, I think, you know, that goes both ways. Whereas like with yourself, you're more of a moderate progressive type guy, you know, to be a cop and to be involved with a, a drug education program that isn't necessarily how most police officers or most conservative people would look at a drug problem. A lot of cops you run into, you know, you're going to have the one that goes this way and the one that goes that way, you know, but if you have them going both ways, half of them are going to be throwing people in jail for minor drug offenses, which we still have here in Saskatoon. No, we still have that. And we have, when I went to jail, you know, and sobered up, one of the things I realized about the people in jail is that most of them weren't even criminals. What do you mean? I would consider myself a criminal for the most part of my life because I was doing illegal stuff to make a living. Most of the people that I met in jail were there simply for minor drug possession, minor offense stuff, and were unable to be released because they were at uh, high risk to reoffend because of previous... Like They weren't people that this, were this serious might, criminals. This might be what they're telling you in there, but... But it's pretty hard to send someone to jail this day and age, in all honesty. To keep them in jail. But I'm talking about the guys, you know, that are being kept on remand for months, two months. That's violent crime. It has to be a violent crime. Most of the people I was in jail with were there for a lot of petty stuff. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm sure a lot of people there were there for violent stuff and other stuff. But a lot of it was just like, when I was in there, when I finally did end up going to jail for whatever it was, just under a two-year period... I was on remand for, we'll say, two or three months. There was such a revolving door for certain people that I seen that yeah. I wouldn't... 
I'm not saying they didn't do illegal stuff. I'm saying they're not real criminals in the fact that they're just not doing anything. I think. Are you, are you talking more about maybe the intent behind yeah, you know, what got them it's there? More, it's more of a drug problem, drinking problem, right. you know, addictions then, problem versus gotcha. I'm doing this to make money. Right. A I criminal is saying. doing something for profit, whereas an addict is doing something to feed a habit. I got you. Okay, that makes sense. And we, we're incarcerating these people because there's, there is the treatment space. You know, They choose not to go to treatment. It's easier for us to do. There's too many people in the system. Yeah. But that goes back to us choosing to throw money at issues that don't matter as much, but are more of a hot topic yeah yeah i think i think that's right and i you know to touch back on the police officer thing i do see as someone who has lived in the city from as a youth to an adult the change in the type of people that are in the police department yeah i would i would say that as a kid i remember there was this his last name was like wolf something and then palm so like these guys were old irish welfare <laughs> beat your ass cops like there was there was no kidding around there was no there's no gray areas. You yeah. know, they were that typical. And I think the United States still goes that way. You know, the military type, the type A personality, whatever you want to call it. Where Saskatoon seems to have a police force that's going or has gone a little bit more progressive in well, the type of people they choose to employ. Well, I'm glad to hear that from your perspective. I mean, I'm a little biased because I work there. These are all my friends. But uh, I mean, cops, when you're sitting around, driving around in a car for 12 hours with your partner... There isn't a partnership in the city. There'll be two tonight. Um, well, there'll be you know dozens of cars with two partners in them tonight, where you know during the slow hours of you know four and five a.m. they'll be trying to solve some of the world's problems. And I think, I think it's because we are hiring professionals here. They encourage you to be university educated. They encourage you to uh, have involvement with your community. And I think that goes back to kind of the original ideals behind policing, right? The whole, you know, Robert, Sir Robert Peel is a guy that, you know, started policing in London, modern day policing in England. And we still adopt here in Canada, his, the Peel's principles are called. And, you know, many of it is that, you know, we're supposed to be a representative of the community. We're members of the community. We're not separate from the community. And I think that's really important and that will keep It'll, you want police officers to use their brains. You want police officers to be thinking because we're given a lot of power. We're, we're, we can take someone's liberties away from them. And anybody that you're giving that ability to, you want them to be able to think critically. And I'm confident to say that any cop that I've worked with does. And the guys and, and women here that, that work like that are an exceptional group. But I also have seen that, you know, a bit of a shift in thinking. As a, as a culture, you know, I'm kind of aware of that. And, and it's what you've said. You, you're seeing that kind of arrest everybody mentality, arrest, you know, to all of a sudden a police service saying, you know what, we're not going to be the dumping ground for all of these other issues. Some of these other services need to pick up, you know, pick up the slack and we're the, we, we can't say no. Someone calls 911, we're going. Yeah. Whether or not it should be a police issue or not, the police are showing up. Other agencies can say, no, we close our doors at five. So I think that's where you're starting to see police advocate for themselves a little bit better too and saying, well, hang on, you know, we've had all these deaths in cells because we're dealing with very vulnerable people who live extremely high-risk lifestyles. And unfortunately, they have to be locked up, you know, until they go to court in our sales because of, we're in our cells, I mean, for whatever crime they've committed. And we check them routinely, but 
we don't know if they've, you know, hooped something or taken something before they come in. And, and sometimes deaths occur in police custody and it's a tragedy and it's just something that occurs. And so the public then, you know, puts a lot of pressure on us and to have a, you know, like Chief Wayhill who said, you know what, we agree this is an issue, but we're not paramedics. You know, we can check these people as much as we can when they come in, but what training do we have? This is a healthcare issue. Mm-hmm. Get a paramedic in here. And he does, and he gets health, you know, we got health region funding. So there's a paramedic now when they come in. So this paramedic is doing the check. So then they can say, you know what? And it happens all the time where the paramedic says, they look, person looks fine to us, but the paramedic says, no, this person's blood pressure or whatever is through the roof. Take them to the emergency room. We're like, hey, thank you. And we're thankful as police because mm-hmm. last thing we want to deal with is, you know, somebody dying in ourselves. So yeah, this is, I think, is the whole culture of progression that's, that's starting to change, which is really good to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Josh, thanks a lot for you know sharing your story with us, man. No problem, Matt. This is awesome. I uh, I've learned a lot, and you know I'm looking forward to seeing where we can what work we can do together in the community out there. Any other questions? I don't think so. I think we uh, got we it all. Hit it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll end it on this question: Is addiction a healthcare issue or a criminal justice issue? Addiction is a people's issue. You know, you can't, you can't lump it into any category. You know, it, it, it touches into so many faucets of life, you know, like your family life, your personal life, your personal, it's personal well-being. It touches into so many things. I don't think you can ever look at it from one aspect. It's, it's got to be tackled from every direction to successfully deal with it. You know, you can't just have just cops dealing with drugs you can't have just treatment people dealing with drugs you know you need family members you need treatment staff you need whatever you can you need scientists researching why the when the where and whatever i think you have to look at it from every point of view and really figure it out before anything is going to ever come out of it because i don't see any progression lately dealing with addictions i think if anything it's just going to get worse and worse because we're looking at it from the wrong point of view Perfect. Great answer, man. Thanks a lot. No problem. Thanks for checking out our very first podcast episode. That was Josh. I hope you learned something from uh, his life experience. I know I definitely did. Our next episode, episode two, will be William Bogart, the author of a book called Off the Street. He's a professor that has delved into some nitty gritty research on drug policy and believes he's come up with some solutions that would help our country. Um, Again, his book is Off the Street, and that's he will be our guest on our next episode. See you in two weeks. And I'd also like to throw a big shout out, as always, to DJ Charlie Hustle, Red Bull 2015 Canadian champion, as he donated all of the music. He's a wicked DJ. Check out his website, charliehustlemusic.com. Thanks. See you in two weeks.